Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. What, shall we, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism in death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, today, once again, we are in our question and answer sort of sermon series. You asked for it, all sermons based on suggestions from the congregation. This week, the assignment is I've been asked to explain our church's views on baptism. We're all aware that different churches do uh, different things. Some churches baptize infants, some do not. Some churches only baptize by immersion. Others will do sprinkling or pouring or, or things like that. I was thinking, reflecting earlier this morning that you know, I feel like in some ways this will be the worst sermon that I've ever preached. And what I mean by that is that... Um, you know, usually in a sermon, I want to just take a text of Scripture and say, explain what it means and unpack it, but there's just so much to say about baptism, both practical considerations and where do we draw it from Scripture that I just, just can't show all of my work here. Um, but um, I'll do my best, and, and hopefully you'll trust me that I did do some work here, but uh, when we will get to Romans 6 uh, shortly. But the differences that we think about with, with baptism, uh, infant baptism or not, immersion or sprinkling or pouring, uh, they're actually rooted in deeper disagreements about baptism itself. And there's a fascinating anecdote I wanted to share with you that uh, comes from the, the heyday of revivalism in our country and when we had uh, river baptisms, you know, baptismal services out in the river. I don't know if the story is true or not, but the story is told that uh, a zealous young evangelist was conducting a baptismal service down in the river one Sunday, and as he was baptizing someone out of the corner of his eye, he notices the town drunk uh, wander into the service, and somehow it happens that this town drunk uh, stumbles his way forward, ends up in the line of folks waiting to be baptized, and thinks maybe this guy really is ready to, to turn his life around. And so when this man comes, finally gets to the front, uh, the preacher asks him, there in the water, are you ready to find Jesus? And to his surprise and delight, the man replies, yes, I believe I am. So he plunges him under the water, brings him back up, and asks, have you found Jesus? He says, no, sir, I, I have not. At this point, the 
young minister is unsure of what else to do, so he, he baptizes him again, and, you know, maybe I missed a spot. He just tries to make sure he gets him fully underwater and asks him, have you found Jesus? And again, and no, sorry, I, I can't say that I have. So the minister is growing frustrated and embarrassed, and in desperation, he dunks the drunk one more time and holds him down for a good 30 seconds under the water. Going to make sure this time people are looking on, wondering if he's going to drown this guy, but he doesn't. He brings him back up and asks the same question, have you found Jesus? And the drunk, coughing and sputtering and wiping his eyes, utters words that the young evangelist would never forget in all of his life, no, sir, I have not found Jesus. Are you sure this is where he fell in? <laughs> so the real question about baptism is, what do we think is supposed to be going on beneath the surface, so to speak? Well, before I dive in and explain our church's views, let me say a few words just to help us navigate these waters, so to speak. When Christians disagree, sometimes we worry about the kind of divisions that the Bible warns us against, right? Uh, is it a bad thing that we have all these different churches with different practices and we disagree with each other? There's an impulse to minimize disagreement. Uh, let's not make waves over baptism, if you will. But disagreement isn't the same thing as disunity. Different churches and denominations and traditions isn't necessarily sectarianism or division. I'm working on a degree right now from a seminary that doesn't share my views on baptism, and it's a, been a great experience. The Christian fellowship and mutual encouragement from classmates and professors has been a wonderful display of Christian unity and support. But baptism is important. Christ commanded us to baptize. It's there in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples, baptizing them. Peter told those who responded to his Pentecost sermon and said, what should we do? He said, repent and be baptized. Uh, later, he wrote a letter in which he used strong language, baptism now saves you. So it's part of our mission, and if it's somehow linked to salvation, we should take baptism very seriously. It's not an elective procedure, so to speak, not a mere formality. It matters to Christ, matters to God, therefore it does matter to us. It's not of ultimate importance. If I can put it this way, the blood of Christ is thicker than the waters of baptism. You can get the gospel right, but get baptism wrong. So we find ways to affirm other Christians who disagree while still living out our convictions about baptism. So that's why getting into some practical things already. Uh, we take communion every week and we say it's open to all baptized believers. Uh, we don't uh, explicitly bar those who were baptized as infants or sprinkled as adults, even with some, some churches would actually. Uh, we also practice watch care membership, which is in part for those who want to be part of our church but don't meet the baptism requirements that we technically have for full membership so they can uh, participate in the life of the church. In our church, they can even vote in a members' meeting. They just can't hold an office. Just ways that we try to find to respect the unity of the, the church, the broader church, while taking baptism seriously. Uh, so that's the first note on navigating these waters. The second one uh, would be kind of a longer note here, actually, but... Um, just wanted to try to explain what kind of differences, where they, these differences actually come from. Again, we know about the visible differences. Do we baptize infants or not? And do we require immersion or can we sprinkle or pour? Maybe break out the, uh, the fire hose and get uh, Steve on that. Uh, but 
those issues, as I said, they really come from deeper disagreements about what baptism is for, what does it do. So I want to kind of, you know, plunge beneath the surface, so to speak, and look at some of those reasons, the way different people think about baptism. And I toyed with different ways to summarize this. It's complex, it's, it's nuanced, not everybody agrees even within each major tradition, so if you come from one of these groups that I'm talking about, that I'm talking about and you say, that didn't really represent exactly my view, yeah, it probably didn't. I, I'm oversimplifying, perhaps, but uh, the best angle I could find was to think of the different Protestant responses to the medieval view of baptism. If you think of the medieval church's view of baptism, which is more or less still the Roman Catholic view, in that view, the act of baptism itself is considered effective in washing away the guilt of original sin, all other sins previously committed, if it's an adult, imparting the Holy Spirit, welcoming you into the church and Christian faith, actually imparts saving grace, they would have said. This is called baptismal regeneration. Baptism is how God causes you to be born again. That's what regeneration means, born again. So why did they baptize infants? They wanted them to be born again, right? No brainer. Well, the Protestant reformers come along with their commitment to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, commitments we as a church strongly share, and that complicates things when it comes to baptism. Because if we believe that the work the work, the saving event, the, the act that saves us is nothing more or less than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then there's a need to rethink the medieval view of baptism. Because baptism, at least on the surface, I keep using that pun, but baptism appears to be another work that saves us in addition to that work of Christ. Uh, one approach is just to try to find a way to make it fit, right? Uh, try to add faith alone to the medieval view of baptism and work out some kind of alternate reasoning to say that baptismal regeneration does not contradict, in fact, grace alone through faith alone. This would be an example of the Lutheran view would be an example of this. Lutherans essentially say that baptism creates saving faith uh, in the infant who is then able to be saved by that faith. So baptism is, uh, they would say, the, the word of God is present. It kind of proclaims the gospel, and so the word is what stirs up faith. And so, you know, how can an infant possibly believe what they can't possibly have understood yet? They just know that their head is wet now, right? Well, um, it's just one of those mysteries. Uh, Martin Luther really loved mysteries. Um, uh, Anglicans, uh, Church of England, they have a variety of views um, but some would say that infant baptism with baptismal regeneration actually upholds salvation by grace because baptism simply happens to you apart from anything that the infant does. They just passively receive it. So that's one uh, approach. We might call it the post hoc rationalization approach. Just find a way to fit baptismal regeneration with by grace through faith theology. And to be fair, if you're already fully convinced of those two points, then that's your only choice. You have to find a logic to make them fit. The Reformed tradition went a different direction. By Reformed, I mean John Calvin and his theological descendants. Uh, mostly today we call them Presbyterians. Uh, they simply rejected baptismal regeneration altogether in favor of faith alone. 
I'll just say at the outset, lay some cards out and say, I, I think they were right to do this. A new birth or regeneration is a saving act of God. Baptism is then just a sign, it's not just, but is, is a sign or a seal of God's saving work, which means it does have value. God does work through baptism and the Lord's Supper to relate to his people, to be present with us, to give us assurance, to help us grow. It's part of the Christian life, but without creating the new life to begin with. So then why would they baptize infants? I think they would say that baptism brings the children of believers into the covenant community. They believe the local church to be a mixed community to some extent, just like Old Testament Israel. Uh, Old Testament Israel practiced circumcision, and they would say baptism fulfills that. Uh, circumcision was a sign of covenant membership for Israelites, whether they genuinely believed God's promises or not. You had Israelites who believed, Israelites who didn't. They were all part of the covenant community. So in the classic sort of Reformed view, children of believing parents are considered to be part of the covenant community, part of the local church, and should receive the sign of that covenant membership, even though they cannot possibly yet believe or experience regeneration until later in life. Does that separate baptism from regeneration? They would say that those who come to faith in Christ later in life can then look back on their infant baptism um, as a sign and seal of their present union with Christ by faith. The sign just happened several years before the fide. Again, that's, that's, so that's view number two. The third approach, and now I'm finally going to start answering the question a little bit, I'm going to start with outlining our, our view, um, would be the Baptistic view, a view of our church. We would agree with the Reformed, like I said, that we reject baptismal regeneration. We don't believe baptism causes the new birth to happen. Baptism is a sign and seal of, of new birth, union with Christ, membership in the covenant community. The main disagreement is that we think the new covenant is newer than they do, essentially, uh, we'd insist that the covenant community is made up of those who believe. It's not meant to be a mixed community. Uh, in the new covenant, Jeremiah says, they will all know me, uh, from the least to the greatest. So the covenant community is not for the unregenerate, regardless of who their parents were. Now, there may be some disagreement even among people who hold to this sort of Baptistic view, I'm calling it, um, but I would say baptism does not, in fact, replace or fulfill uh, Old Testament circumcision. Uh, technically, I would say the fulfillment of circumcision in the Old Testament is nothing other than what the Old Testament already itself pointed to, which is circumcision of the heart. Even going back to the book of Deuteronomy, there's a call for circumcision of the heart, which I would argue is what God accomplishes in regeneration, this transformation of our hearts. We're part of the new covenant people, not by natural birth, but by new birth. So we agree that baptism is not a cause, but is a sign of God's saving work. For that reason, we want to do our best to only baptize people who have experienced that, people who are regenerate. That's why we see no reason to baptize infants. On the other hand, uh, in a sense, like Lutherans and, and Catholics, the, the other other views, we do think that baptism and regeneration should go together in our, in our stories. 
Uh, we might say that the Reformed view creates an unnatural separation between baptism and our conversion or regeneration or being born again. Before the Reformed view came into being, virtually everyone agreed that baptism and regeneration should go together. It's just that the medieval church got the relationship backwards and then said that baptism accomplishes new birth. We'd say someone isn't born again because they're baptized. They get baptized because they were born again. So this is also called believer's baptism. We only baptize those who have made a credible profession of faith. Does that mean that we have to be 100% certain that someone is a believer before we baptize them? Well, no, because we can't be 100% certain in a scientific sort of way. We're not doing probationary periods for new converts or hiring private investigators to follow them around and examine their life. We're not uh, hooking them up to a lie detector test and asking them to explain the hypostatic union. I, that last one sounds really fun to me, but the elders won't let me do it. The point is that we're not going to knowingly baptize someone who isn't a believer. To the best of our knowledge, we seek to baptize believers. I should note also, uh, because it is part of our uh, church's history in a sense, um, there are those who believe uh, in believers' baptism, but also believe in something similar to baptismal regeneration. Uh, the, what we call the Stone-Campbell movement uh, traditions, like the Disciple of Christ and Churches of Christ, generally teach that you're not saved until you have been baptized. They don't like the term baptismal regeneration. They might argue something like you're saved and born again you know, by grace through faith, but it doesn't actually happen until you get baptized. So sure, you're saved by grace through faith, but only when you get baptized by immersion. Um, and our church was originally founded in that tradition, but, but we would reject that view today. We don't believe someone who genuinely believes the gospel but gets run over by a truck on the way to baptism, we don't believe that person would end up in hell. That's not justification by grace alone through faith alone, is it? The alone part is missing. If you can only be justified by grace through faith, if you're also baptized, then baptism is another condition. It's not grace alone through faith alone. It's grace through faith plus baptism. Another work of obedience added on to the merits of Christ. It's not grace alone through faith alone. It's grace through faith plus baptism. At that point, you've essentially gone just back to the Roman Catholic view only without baptizing infants. Because Roman Catholics will also insist they believe in salvation by grace through faith. Because through faith you receive God's grace in your baptism. Baptism only works because of the presence of grace and faith they would argue. So anyway, back to our view, our understanding of the Baptistic view, we'd say that baptism is an outward public sign of the new birth that someone has already experienced. It doesn't bring about the new birth. We seek to administer it only to those who show evidence of the new birth, which is primarily, uh, first and foremost, those who profess faith in Christ alone for their salvation. We believe it's the sign and seal of membership in the covenant community. To borrow language from a book by author Bobby Jameson, it's how we go public with our faith. We believe, would argue, God does use our baptism like he uses the Lord's Supper to give us assurance to sustain our faith and to help us grow in Christ-likeness. 
So that's, I'm just looking at it from kind of a theological perspective. And as you've noted, I've been talking for some time now and I haven't gotten to the sermon text yet. And like I said, this isn't how I want to really generally approach a sermon, just telling you what I think instead of showing you what the Bible says. And you just have to trust me that I got all this from the Bible. But uh, some things I have to assume that we just already maybe agree on, like justification by grace through faith and talk about its implications. But Baptism is a huge topic. It would take hours to talk about every issue, explain why I take the position that I do. There are so many little questions and nuances, right? Just to name a few here, I haven't said anything about the mode of baptism, meaning immersion, fully dunking somebody under the water versus just sprinkling uh, some water on top. Uh, We do immersion because even most Most of those who baptize infants would agree that this was likely the New Testament and early church practice, uh, uh, just early, even extra-biblical archaeological evidence to that effect. Also because it best depicts the, the death and burial and resurrection of Christ and the total transformation of the believer through union with Christ. But... We're not, I guess, as passionate about the mode of baptism as the recipient. My predecessor, Pastor Mike, was ministering to a man on his, Beth, his deathbed who had a strong desire to be baptized. So Mike said he just found some water and got him wet as best as he could. Now, I wouldn't say that that's the ideal practice of, of baptism, but as far as I know, no one objected to it, myself included. It's not my preference, But I can't say for sure that I would refuse to do the exact same thing in that situation. Other questions. You know, baptism. If you're baptized by a a gospel-denying sect, like Jehovah's Witnesses, deny that Jesus is God, you're baptized in that tradition. Is that a valid baptism? I would say no. If there's no gospel, there's no baptism. Uh, Can we baptize kids at a youth camp? Well, I I think it should normally be the church that baptizes, but I wouldn't re-baptize someone just because they were baptized by a camp counselor. A similar, does, does a pastor have to do the baptizing? And no, there's good practical reasons, but it's not a requirement. Philip, when he baptized the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip was a deacon. Um, what about this or that biblical passage, right? All kinds of passages that I'm not mentioning. First Peter 3, the Philippian jailer, and the, my answer to that is, you know, how long do you want to be here this morning? Uh, if you want to know how I understand a specific passage, you can see me after class. Uh, one of the most burning questions I've had, you know, can my unbaptized kids, can they eat at Chick-fil-A? And the answer is yes, but they can only have the kids' meal. <laughs> and never on a Sunday. If you have leftovers, you have to throw them away at sundown on Saturday. These are the rules, so I don't make them up. Rather, But anyway, those are some of the weeds that we can get into. But what I want to do finally now in Romans 6 is just give an example of Uh, how I understand the Bible's teaching on baptism, how we we read scripture from this perspective. I picked Romans 6 as our text just to give a small taste here. I think Romans 6 gives us a relatively clear picture of how we understand the baptism of believers and its function in our our lives as Christians. And since it's good good practice always to start with a clear passage and then work toward the difficult passages, this is where I want to spend time and what time remains here. So Romans 6, notice what Paul is doing here. He's using baptism to encourage Christian living. Are we to sin uh, that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So giving baptism as part of his reason for why we don't just continue in sin, why we should press on in the Christian life. Putting this in context a little bit, chapters 4 and 5, Paul was laying out this truth that we are saved by faith apart from works. And he used Abraham as an example. Abraham was, was justified before he received circumcision. Circumcision, an old covenant sign, is not what saved Abraham. Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness before he was circumcised. So just like Abraham, Paul says, we are justified by faith and have peace with God through Jesus Christ. By faith, not by our acts of obedience. We were already, we were dead in our sins through Adam's transgressions, but now if we're in Christ, we are made righteous through him. That's where Paul leaves us at the end of chapter 5. Julia read it for us earlier in the service. So that means it's party time and we can sin all we want, right? Uh, No. Uh, Paul says that ain't it, right? And, And in his response to this, he points them to their baptism. That's the first thing to notice from this passage is that we do, as Christians, look to our baptism to remember who we are in Christ and to find motivation for living out who we are in Christ. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. He goes on to say that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The logic behind today's sermon text And the reason that grace is not a license for sin is our union with Christ. Christ's righteousness is applied to us because we are united with him through faith. His bride's debts thereby become his own debts, which he paid in full. But for that same reason, we cannot use his grace as an excuse to sin with impunity. To believe what the gospel says about us is to believe that we are both dead to sin and now alive to God because we are united with Christ both in his death and his resurrection. So it's the death and resurrection of Christ that now defines us, has redefined us. And if that's who we are, then that's how we are to live. We won't do it perfectly, but we do it genuinely. Paul points the Romans to their baptisms as a reminder of who they are now. So that's point number one. Point number two, uh, we'll get into from this angle. You can see how someone would look at this passage and conclude that baptism is what makes us dead to sin and alive to God, is what unites us to Christ. As many as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. It doesn't say anything about a causal relationship here. It just says that those who were baptized into Christ were also baptized in his death. But if you were reading this completely out of context, it would seem pretty plausible. The problem is it runs counter to the logic of what Paul said about Abraham and circumcision, right? He was already reckoned righteous by faith before receiving the sign of circumcision. If we're not actually dead to sin and alive to God until we are baptized, then the new covenant is more ritualistically works-based 
than the old covenant. And that does not make any sense to me. hope it doesn't to you either. I would contend that Paul, what he's doing here, is using baptism in this text as a kind of what's called a synecdoche. There's a good word for your spelling bee. That's S-Y-N-E-C-D-O-C-H-E. And believe it or not, it's not pronounced synecdoche. It's synecdoche. It's not a town in upstate New York. It is a way of speaking that uses part of something to refer to the whole. For example, Lord's Prayer. What do we pray? Give us this day our daily bread. As much as I would like to put the anti-carb keto diet on blast, we're not just literally asking for specifically bread. We're asking for the whole of our food needs and really even... I think the whole of our physical needs, bread stands in as just a part of what we need, representing the whole, right? So the Bible can use this kind of language. I think when Paul points the Romans to their baptism, that the best way to understand this, in light of what he's already said about salvation by grace through faith alone, is that baptism is a synecdoche, representation of their whole conversion experience. They heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They believed what they heard. They repented. They were baptized. They put their trust in Christ's death and resurrection, and they went public with that trust, with that faith, by receiving baptism. Baptism is what made their experience of God's grace visible, made it a matter of public record. And there are other places where you know, Paul points people back to that time when they first became believers. Uh, Galatians 3.2, he asks, did you receive the Spirit by works of law or by the hearing of faith? Pointing to them to when they first heard the gospel, believed, received the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So Paul sometimes reminds people not only of the gospel message itself, what Christ has done on the cross, but of their experience of receiving and believing that message, coming to faith. I think both here in Romans 6, we could also bring in Colossians 2.12, which is where Paul speaks of being buried with Christ in baptism. Uh, whether baptism is mentioned or not, uh, Paul points Christians back to the point where God's grace in Christ came into contact with their lives, where the redemption which was already accomplished on the cross was applied to them, when they were regenerated, born again, brought from death to life. I don't mean to say that new birth, by the way, is always a clear and dramatic point in time. It was for them because they were the first Christians, right? They weren't raised in Christians' homes, Christian homes because those didn't exist yet. It was Paul on the frontier proclaiming the gospel. But whatever it looks like when we come to faith, whether it's a clear point in time or something gradual and, and subtle or something that happened in early childhood, um, whatever it looks like, we do experience the grace of God bringing us to new life in Christ. And baptism uh, bears witness to what God has done for us in Christ. That's why baptism, though again not necessary for salvation, is still important to the believer. It is meant to be something we look on as, as part of our story, part of how uh, we remember how God has redeemed us and made us new. Um, another anecdote, 
wrap this up here. I, I, this time it's a personal one. I don't know that I was fully convinced of my current views of believer's baptism until after the fact. I had been sprinkled as a child. I, I vaguely remember it, um, and I, but I wasn't really passionate about my baptismal views. And then I decided, uh, well, I decided to go to a Baptist seminary and they did require believer's baptism by immersion even, I think, to attend. And, you know, was I really convinced of the need to be baptized as a believer or did I just rationalize it so that I could make uh, the admissions requirements? Um, I'd say that perhaps my motives at that point were maybe not entirely pure. Uh, I'm not, not, not sure that, um, um, yeah, I'm just not sure. Uh, where I was exactly, I, I, I was a believer, and I wasn't really going against conscience on baptism. I just didn't really have any conscience when it came to baptism. Um, so, pulpit confessional time. But God is gracious, and he, I believe he did work through my experience of baptism. Again, it's not that I wasn't saved before, but I felt my faith strengthened through that. My assurance of God's grace increase. I, I do believe God's spirit and the presence of God's people worked in my heart and mind to grow my confidence in Christ my Savior and my union with him and, and new life in him. So baptism, it, it's not how God's saving grace is imparted or infused into us, but baptism is a gift of God's grace. It is, if I can put it this way, an instrument not of God's justifying grace by which we're declared righteous once and for all, but maybe part of God's sanctifying grace by which he continues to work in us. He uses it like he uses the Lord's Supper to, to nurture our faith, to shape us in the likeness of Christ. I think that's the point that, that maybe we can all agree on. That baptism and the Lord's Supper are not fundamentally about what we do, what Christ has done for us. It's ultimately not a sign of our faith even, but of God's grace. We don't receive baptism or the bread and cup of the Lord's Supper to try to find Christ, or even as a reminder that we've found him, but a reminder that he has found us. So in these ordinances, and we'll take Lord's Supper just a few moments, we behold the wondrous mystery of the dawning of our King. They are but a foretaste of the deliverance purchased for us by the cross of Christ. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great redemption that we have in Christ. And we thank you that you have given us your word to testify to your work in Christ, the gospel, this wondrous, wondrous message of your grace and your love for us and the salvation that you have provided in Christ. But you have also given us other ways to remember and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, both in uh, baptism and in Lord's Supper. And of course, we do recognize that uh, Christians have wrestled with the best way to practice these, the most consistent way to practice these in, in light of what we believe about how we are saved by your grace through the faith that you give us through regeneration 
we can sometimes get lost in those disagreements, recognize that we do need to take them seriously because it is your word, it is your command. Yet we ask that you would help us not to miss the forest uh, through the trees as we even partake, uh, prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, and as we continue um, to make baptism and Lord's Supper part of our life in the church, we ask that uh, you would work in our hearts and hold forth what is most important, that these things would remind us that Christ has died and Christ is risen and Christ will come again, that these ordinances would focus our hearts not on our work, but your work, and not for our glory, but for the glory of God alone. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.